Part one of Book One, Chapter Nine of These Twain by Arnold Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Book One, Chapter Nine, Part One. The Weekend. One. The events of the portentous weekend, which included the musical evening, began early on the Saturday, and the first one was a chance word uttered by George. Breakfast was nearly over in the Clayhanger dining-room. Hilda sat opposite to Edwin and George between them. They had all eaten with appetite, and the disillusion which usually accompanies the satisfaction of desire was upon them. They had looked forward to breakfast, scenting with zest its pleasing odours, and breakfast was over, save perhaps for a final unnecessary piece of toast or half a cup of chilled coffee. Hilda did not want to move, because she did not care for the Saturday morning task of shopping and revittling and being bland with fellow shoppers in the emporiums. The house doors were too frequently open on Saturday mornings, an errand boy is thereat, and a wind blowing through the house, and it was the morning for specially cleaning the hall, detestable and damp operation, and servants seemed loose on Saturday morning, and dinner was apt to be late. But Hilda knew she would have to move. To postpone was only to aggravate. Destiny grasped her firm. George was not keen about moving because he had no plan of campaign. The desolating prospect of resuming school on Monday had withered his energy. He was in a mood to be either a martyr or a villain. Edwin was lazily sardonic, partly because the leisure of breakfast was at an end, partly because he hated the wage-paying slackness of Saturday morning at the shop, and partly because his relations with Hilda had remained indefinite and disquieting despite a thousand mutual urbanities and thoughtful refinements, and even some caresses. A sense of aimlessness dejected him, and in the central caves of his brain the question was mysteriously stirring. What is the use of all these things? Success, dignity, importance, luxury, love, sensuality, order, moral superiority? He foresaw thirty years of breakfasts, with plenty of the finest home-cured bacon and fresh eggs, but no romance. Before his marriage, he used to read the paper honestly and rudely at breakfast. That is to say, he would prop it up squarely in front of him, hiding his sister Maggie, and anyhow ignoring her, and Maggie had to like it or lump it. She probably lumped it. But upon marriage he had become a chevalier. He had nobly decided that it was not correct to put a newspaper between yourself and a woman who had denied you nothing. Nevertheless, his appetite for newspapers being almost equal to his appetite for bacon, he would still take nips at the newspaper during breakfast, hold it in one hand, glance at it, drop it, pick it up, talk amiably while glancing at it, drop it, pick it up again. So long as the newspaper was held aside and did not touch the table, so long as he did not read much more than ten lines at a time, he considered that Punctilio was satisfied and that he was not, in fact, reading the newspaper at all. But towards the end of breakfast, when the last food was disappearing and he had lapped the cream off the news, he would hold the newspaper in both hands and brazenly and conscientiously read. His chief interest just then was political. Like most members of his party, he was endeavouring to decipher the party programme and not succeeding, and he feared for his party and was a little ashamed for it. Grave offence had occurred. The substructure of the state was rocking a newly elected supporter of the government, unaware that he was being admitted to the best club in London, had gone to the House of Commons in a tweed cap 
and preceded by a brass band. Serious pillars of society knew that the time had come to invest their savings abroad. Edwin, with many another ardent liberal, was seeking to persuade himself that everything was all right after all. The domestic atmosphere, Hilda's baffling face, the empty table, the shadow of business, repletion, early symptoms of indigestion, the sound of a slop pail in the hall, did not aid him to optimism. In brief, the morning was a fair specimen of a kind of morning that seemed likely to be for him an average morning. "'Can't I leave the table, mother?' asked George discontentedly. Hilda nodded. George gave a coarse sound of glee. "'George, that's so unlike you!' His mother frowned. Instead of going directly towards the door, he must needs pass right round the table behind the chair of his occupied uncle. As he did so, he scanned the newspaper and read out loudly in passing for the benefit of the room, "'Local divorce case, etches v etches, painful details!' The words meant nothing to George. They happened to catch his eye. He read them as he might have read an extract from the books of Euclid, and noisily and ostentatiously departed, not without a further protest from Hilda. And Edwin and Hilda, left alone together, were self-conscious. "'Lively kid,' murmured Edwin self-consciously, and Hilda self-consciously. "'You never told me that case was on.' "'I didn't know till I saw it here. "'What's the result?' Not finished. Here you are, if you want to read it. He handed the sheet across the table. Despite his serious interest in politics, he had read the report before anything else. Etches v. Etches, indeed, surpassed Gladstonian politics as an aid to the dubious prosperity of the very young morning newspaper, which represented the latest and most original attempt to challenge the journalistic monopoly of the afternoon Staffordshire Signal. It lived scarcely longer than the divorce case, for the proprietors, though non-conformists and therefore astute, had failed to foresee that the five towns public would not wait for racing results until the next morning. Thanks, the elder amiably and negligently murmured. Edwin hummed. Useless for Hilda to take that casual tone. Useless for Edwin to hum. The unconcealable thought in both their minds was, and each could divine the other's thought and almost hear its vibration. We might end at the divorce court, too. Hence their self-consciousness. The thought was absurd, irrational, indefensible, shocking. It had no father and no mother. It sprang out of naught. But it existed, and it had force enough to make them uncomfortable. The Etches couple, belonging to the great, numerous, wealthy and respectable family of Etches, had been married barely a year. Edwin rose and glanced at his well-tended fingernails. The pleasant animation of his skin caused by the bath was still perceptible. He could feel it in his back, and it helped his conviction of virtue. He chose a cigarette out of his silver case, a good cigarette, a good case, and lit it, and waved the match into extinction, and puffed out much smoke, and regarded the correctness of the crease in his trousers. The vertical trouser crease having recently been introduced into the district and insisted on by that tailor and artist and seeker after perfection, Shilito, and walked firmly to the door. But the self-consciousness remained. Just as he reached the door, his wife, gazing at the newspaper, stopped him. Edwin, what's up? He did not move from the door and she did not look up from the newspaper. Seen your friend Big James this morning? 
Edwin usually went down to business before breakfast, so that his conscience might be free for a leisurely meal at nine o'clock. Big James was the oldest employee in the business. Originally he had been foreman compositor and was still technically so described, but in fact he was general manager and Edwin's majestic vice-regent in all the printing shops. Ask Big James was the watchword of the whole organism. No, said Edwin. Why? Oh, nothing. It doesn't matter. Edwin had made certain resolutions about his temper, but it seemed to him that such a reply justified annoyance, and he therefore permitted himself to be annoyed, failing to see that serenity is a positive virtue only when there is justification for annoyance. The nincompoop had not even begun to perceive that what is called right-living means the acceptance of injustice and the excusing of the inexcusable. Now then, he said brusquely, out with it. But there was still a trace of rough tolerance in his voice. No, it's all right, I was wrong to mention it. Her admission of sin did not in the least placate him. He advanced towards the table. You haven't mentioned it, he said stiffly. Their eyes met as Hilda's acquitted the newspaper. He could not read hers. She seemed very calm. He thought as he looked at her, How strange it is that I should be living with this woman. What is she to me? What do I know of her? She said with tranquillity, If you do see Big James, you might tell him not to trouble himself about that programme. Programme? What programme? he asked, startled. Oh, Edwin, she gave a little laugh. The musical evening programme, of course. I'll be having a musical evening tomorrow night. More justification for annoyance. Why should she confuse the situation by pretending that he had forgotten the musical evening? The pretense was idiotic, deceiving no one. The musical evening was constantly being mentioned. Reports of assiduous practising had reached them, and on the previous night they had had quite a subdued altercation over a proposal of Hilda's for altering the furniture in the drawing-room. This is the first I've heard of any programme, said Edwin. Do you mean a printed programme? Of course, she could mean nothing else. He was absolutely staggered at the idea that she'd been down to his works without a word to him and given orders to Big James or even talked to Big James about a programme. She had no remorse. She had no sense of danger. Had she the slightest conception of what business was? Imagine Maggie attempting such a thing. It was simply not conceivable. A wife going to her husband's works and behind his back giving orders? It was as though a natural law had suspended its force. Why, Edwin, she said, in extremely clear, somewhat surprised and gently benevolent accents, whatever's the matter with you? There is a programme of music, I suppose. Now she was ridiculously changing the meaning of the word programme. What infantile tactics! It occurred to me all of a sudden yesterday afternoon how nice it would be to have it printed on gilt-edged cards. So I ran down to the shop, but you weren't there. So I saw Big James. You never said anything about it to me last night, nor this morning. Didn't I? Well, I forgot. Grotesque creature. Well, what did Big James say? Oh, don't ask me. But if he treats all your customers as he treated me... However, it doesn't matter now. I shall write the programme out myself. What did he say? It wasn't what he said. But he's very rude, you know. Other people think so too. What other people? Oh, never mind who. Of course, I know how to take it. And I know you believe in him blindly. But his airs are preposterous. And he's a dirty old man. 
And I say, Edwin, seeing how very particular you are about things at home, you really ought to see that the front shop is kept cleaner. It's no affair of mine, and I never interfere, but really... Not a phrase of this speech, but what was highly and deliberately provocative. Assuredly no other person had ever said that Big James was rude. But had somebody else said it so, after all? Suppose challenged she gave a name. Big James' heirs were not preposterous. He was merely old and dignified. His apron and hands were dirty, naturally. And then the implication that Big James was a fraud, and that he, Edwin, was simpleton enough to be victimised by the fraud, while the great all-seeing Hilda exposed it at a single glance. And the implication that he, Edwin, was fussy at home and negligent at the shop. And the astounding assertion that she never interfered. He smothered up all his feelings with difficulty, as a sailor smothers up a lowered sail in a high wind, and merely demanded for the third time, What did Big James say? I was given to understand, said Hilda roguishly, that it was quite, quite, quite impossible. But His Majesty would see. Well, he needn't see. I see how wrong I was to suggest it at all. Edwin moved away in silence. Are you going, Edwin? she asked innocently. Yes, glumly. You haven't kissed me. She did not put him to the shame of returning to her. No, she jumped up, blithely, radiant. Her make-believe that nothing had happened was maddening. She kissed him lovingly, with a smile, more than once. He did not kiss. He was kissed. Nevertheless, somehow the kissing modified his mental position, and he felt better after it. Don't work yourself up, darling, she counselled him with kindness and concern as he went out of the room. You know how sensitive you are. It was a calculated insult, but an insult which had to be ignored. To notice it would have been a grave tactical error. 2. When he reached the shop, he sat down at his old desk in the black-stained cubicle and spied forth and around for the alleged dust which he would tolerate in business but would not tolerate at home. It was there. He could see places that had obviously not been touched for weeks, withdrawn places where the undisturbed bounds of stock and litter had the eternal character of Roman remains or vestiges of creation. The senior errand boy was in the shop, snuffling over a blue paper parcel. Boy, said Edwin, what time do you come here in the morning? Half past seven, sir. Well, on Monday morning you'll be here at seven, and you'll move everything, there and there and there, and sweep and dust properly. This shop's like a pigsty. I believe you never dust anything but the counters. He was mild, but firm. He knew himself for a just man, yet the fact that he was robbing this boy of half an hour's sleep, and probably the boy's mother also, and upsetting the ancient order of the boy's household, did not trouble him, did not even occur to him. For him, the boy had no mother and no household, but was a patent self-causing boy that came miraculously into existence on the shop doorstep every morning and achieved annihilation thereon every night. The boy was a fatalist, but his fatalism had limits because he well knew that the demand for errand boys was greater than the supply. Though the limits of his fatalism had not yet been reached, he was scarcely pleased. If I come at seven, who'll give me the key, sir? he demanded rather surlily, wiping his nose on his sleeve. I'll see that you have the keys, said Edwin, with divine assurance, though he had not thought of the difficulty of the keys. The boy left the shop. 
his body thrown out of the perpendicular by the weight of the blue paper parcel. "'You ought to keep an eye on this place,' said Edwin quietly to the young man, who combined the function of clerk with that of salesman to the rare retail customers. "'I can't see to everything. Here, check these wages for me.' He indicated small piles of money. Oh, "'Yes, sir,' said the clerk with self-respect, but admitting the justice of the animate version. Edwin seldom had difficulty with his employees. Serious friction was unknown in the establishment. He went out by the back entrance, thinking, "'It's no affair whatever of hers. Moreover, the shop's as clean as shops are, and a damp site cleaner than most. A shop isn't a drawing-room. And now there's the infernal programme.' He would have liked to bury and forget the matter of the programme, but he could not. His conscience, or her fussiness, would force him to examine into it. There was no doubt that Big James was getting an old man, with peculiar pompous mannerisms and a disposition towards impossibilism. Big James ought to have remembered, in speaking to Hilda, that he was speaking to the wife of his employer. That Hilda should give an order, or even make a request, direct, was perhaps unusual. But, dash it, you know what women were, and if that old josser of a bachelor Big James didn't know what women were, so much the worse for him. He should just give Big James a hint. He could not have Big James making mischief between himself and Hilda. But the coward would not go straight to Big James. He went first up to what had come to be called the Lytho Room, partly in order to postpone Big James, but partly also because he had quite an affectionate proud interest in the Lytho Room. In Edward's childhood, this room, now stripped and soiled into a workshop, had been the drawing-room of the Clayhanger family, and it still showed the defect which it had always shown. The window was too small and too near the corner of the room. No transformation could render it satisfactory save a change in the window. Old Darius Clayhanger had vaguely talked of altering the window. Edwin had thought seriously of it, but nothing had been done. Edwin was continuing the very policy of his father which had so roused his disdain when he was young, the policy of making things do. Instead of entering upon lithography in a manner bold, logical and decisive, he had nervously and half-heartedly slivered into it. Thus, at the back of the yard was a second-hand Newsome machine in quarters too small for it, and the apparatus for the preliminary polishing of the stones, while up here in the ex-drawing-room were grotesquely mingled the final polishing process and the artistic department. The artist who drew the designs on the stone was a German, with short fair hair and moustache, a thick neck and a changeless expression. Edwin had surprisingly found him in Hambridge. He was very skilled in judging the amount of work necessary on the stone to produce a desired result on the paper, and very laborious. Without him, the nascent lithographic trade could not have prospered. His wages were extremely moderate, but they were what he had asked, and in exchange for them he gave his existence. Edwin liked to watch him drawing slavishly, meticulously, endlessly. He was absolutely without imagination, artistic feeling, charm, urbanity, or elasticity of any sort. A miracle of sheer, gruff positiveness. He lived somewhere in Hambridge, and had once been seen by Edwin on a Sunday afternoon, wheeling a perambulator and smiling at a young, enciente woman who held his free arm. An astounding sight, which forced Edwin to adjust his estimates. He grimly called himself an Englishman, and was legally entitled to do so. On this morning he was drawing a ewer and a basin for the illustrated catalogue of an earthenware manufacturer. Not a very good light today, murmured Edwin. Eh? 
not a very good light. No, said Carl sourly and indifferently, bent over the stone and breathing with calm regularity. My eyesight is being destroyed. Behind, a young man in a smock was industriously polishing a stone. Ebbin beheld with pleasure. It was a joy to think that here was the sole lithography in Bursley, and that his own enterprise had started it. Nevertheless, he was ashamed, too, ashamed of his hesitations, his half-measures, his timidity, and of Carl's impaired eyesight. There was no reason why he should not build a proper works, and every reason why he should. The operation would be remunerative. It would set an example. It would increase his prestige. He grew resolute. On the day of the party at the Bembos, he had been and carefully inspected the plot of land at Shawport, and yesterday he had made a very low offer for it. If the offer was refused, he would raise it. He swore to himself he would have his works. Then Big James came into the Lytho room. I was seeking ye, sir, said Big James majestically, with a mysterious expression. Edwin tried to look at him anew, as if it were with Hilda's eyes. Certainly his bigness amounted now to an enormity, for proportionately his girth more than matched his excessive height. His apron descended from the semicircle of his paunch like a vast grey wall. The apron was dirty, this being Saturday, but it was at any rate intact. In old days, Big James and others, at critical moments of machining, used to tear strips off their aprons for machine rags. Yes, he was conceivably a grotesque figure, with his spectacles which did not suit him, his heavy breathing, his mannerisms, and his grandiose air of Atlas supporting the moral world. A woman might be excused for seeing the comic side of him. But surely he was honest and loyal. Surely he was not the adder that Hilda had with an intonation suggested. I'm coming, said Edwin rather curtly. He felt just in the humour for putting Big James straight. Still, his reply had not been too curt, for to his staff he was the opposite of a bully. He had always scorned to take a facile advantage of his power, often tried even to conceal his power in the fiction that the employee was one man and himself merely another. He would be far more devastating to his wife and his sister than to any employee. But at intervals a bad or careless workman had to meet the blaze of his eye and accept the lash of his speech. "'It's about that little job for the mistress, sir,' said Big James, in a soft voice, when they were out on the landing. Edwin gave a start. The aging man's tones were so eager, so anxiously loyal. His emphasis on the word mistress conveyed so clearly that the mistress was a high and glorious personage to serve whom was an honour, and a fearful honour. The aging man had almost whispered, like a boy, glancing with jealous distrust at the shut door of the room that contained the German. Oh, muttered Edwin, taken aback. I set it up myself, said Big James, and holding his head very high, looked down at Edwin under his spectacles. Why? said Edwin cautiously. I thought you'd given Mrs. Clayhanger the idea that it couldn't be done in time. Oh, bless you, sir, not if I know it. I intimated to her the situation in which we were placed, with urgent jobs on hand, as is duty-bound, sir, she being the mistress. You know how slow I am to give a promise, sir. But not to do it, such was not my intention. And as I've said already, sir, I've set it up myself, and here's a rough pull. He produced a piece of paper. Edwin's ancient affection for Big James grew indignant. The old fellow was the very mirror of loyalty. He might be somewhat grotesque and mannered upon occasion, but he was the soul of the clayhanger business. 
He had taught Ebim most of what he knew about both typesetting and machining. It seemed not long since that he used to call Edwin young sir, and to enter into tacit leagues with him against the dangerous obstinacies of his decaying father. Big James had genuinely admired Darius Clayhanger. Assuredly he admired Darius' son not less. His fidelity to the dynasty was touching. It was wistful. The order from the mistress had tremendously excited and flattered him in his secret heart. And yet Hilda must call him names, must insinuate against his superb integrity, must grossly misrepresent his attitude to herself. Whatever in his pompous old way he might have said, she could not possibly have mistaken his anxiety to please her. No, she had given a false account of their interview, and Ebin had believed it. Ebin now swerved violently back to his own original view. He firmly believed Big James against his wife. He reflected, how simple I was to swallow all Hilda said without confirmation. I might have known. And that he should think such a thought shocked him tremendously. The programme was not satisfactorily set up. Apart from several mistakes in the spelling of proper names, the thing with its fancy types, curious centering and superabundance of full stops, resembled more the libretto of a primitive Methodist tea-meeting than a programme of classical music offered to refined dilettanti on a Sunday night. Though Edwin had endeavoured to modernise Big James, he had failed. It was perhaps well that he had failed, for the majority of customers preferred Big James' tastes in printing to Edwin. He corrected the misspellings and removed a few full stops, and then said, It's all right, but I doubt if Mrs. Clayhanger's care for all these fancy fonts, implying that it was a pity, of course, that Big James' fancy fonts would not be appreciated at their true value, but women were women. I should almost be inclined to set it all again in old face. I'm sure she'd prefer it. Do you mind? With the greatest of pleasure, sir, Big James heartily concurred, looking at his watch. But I must be lively. He conveyed his immense bulk neatly and importantly down the narrow stairs. 3. Edwin sat in his cubicle again, his affection for Big James very active. How simple and agreeable it was to be a man among men only. The printing business was an organism fifty times as large as the home, and it worked fifty times more smoothly. No misunderstandings, no secrecies, at any rate among the chief persons concerned, and a general recognition of the principles of justice. Even the errand boy had understood, and the shop clerk, by his tone, had admitted that he too was worthy of blame. The blame was not overdone, and common sense had closed the episode in a moment. And see with what splendid goodwill Big James, despite the intense conservatism of old age, had accepted the wholesale condemnation of his idea of a programme. The relations of men were truly wonderful when you come to think about it, and to be at business was a relief, and even a pleasure. Edwin could not remember having ever before regarded the business as a source of pleasure. A youth, he had gone into it greatly against his will, and by tradition he had supposed himself still to hate it. Why had Hilda misled him as to Big James? For she had misled him. Yes, she had misled him. What was her motive? What did she think she would gain by it? He was still profoundly disturbed by this deception. Why, he thought, I can't trust her. I shall have to be on my guard. I've been in the habit of opening my mouth and swallowing practically everything she says. His sense of justice very sharply resented her perfidy to Big James. His heart warmed to the defence of the excellent old man. What had she got against Big James? Since the day when the enormous old man had first shown her over the printing shops, before their original betrothal, 
a decade or more ago. He had never treated her with anything but an elaborate and sincere respect. Was she jealous of him, because of his, Edwin's, expressed confidence in and ancient regard for him, and because Edwin and he had always been good companions? Or had she merely taken a dislike to him, a physical dislike? Edwin had noticed that some women had a malicious detestation for some old men, especially when the old men had any touch of the grotesque or the pompous. Well, he should defend old Big James against her. She should keep her hands off Big James. His sense of justice was so powerful in that moment that if he had had to choose between his wife and Big James, he would have chosen Big James. He came out of the cubicle into the shop and arranged his countenance so that the clerk should suppose him to be thinking in tremendous concentration upon some complex problem of the business. And simultaneously, Hilda passed up Dark Bank on the way to market. She passed so close to the shop that she seemed to brush it like a delicious, exciting and exasperating menace. If she turned her head, she could scarcely fail to see Edwin near the door of the shop. But she did not turn her head. She glided up the slope steadily and implacably. And even in the distance of the street, her individuality showed itself mysterious and strong. He could never decide whether she was beautiful or not. He felt that she was impressive and not to be scorned or ignored. Perhaps she was not beautiful. Certainly she was not young. She had not the insipidity of the young girl unfulfilled. Nor did she inspire melancholy like the woman just beyond her prime. The one was going to be, the other had been. Hilda was. And she had lived. There was in her none of the detestable ignorance and innocence that for Edwin spoilt the majority of women. She knew. She was an equal, and a dangerous equal. Simultaneously he felt that he could crush and kill the little thing, and that he must beware of the powerful, unscrupulous, inscrutable individuality. And she receded still higher up Duck Bank, and then turned round to the corner to the marketplace, and vanished. And there was a void. She would return. As she had receded gradually, so she would gradually approach the shop again with her delicious, exciting, exasperating menace. And he had a scheme for running out to her, and with candour inviting her in, and explaining to her in just the right tone of goodwill, that loyalty to herself simply hummed and buzzed in the shop and the printing works, and that Big James worshipped her, and that though she was perfect in sagacity, she had really been mistaken about Big James. And he had a vision of her smiling kindly and frankly upon Big James, and Big James twisting upon his own axis in joyous pride. Nothing but goodwill and candour was required to produce this bliss. But he knew that he would never run out to her and invite her to enter. The enterprise was perilous to the point of being foolhardy. With a tone, with a hesitation, with an indecipherable pout, she might, she would, render it absurd. And then his pride. At that moment, young Alec Batchgrew, perhaps then the town's chief mooncalf, came down Duck Bank in dazzling breeches on a superb grey horse. And Edwin went abruptly back to work, lest the noodle should rain into the shop door and talk to him. 4. When he returned home a few minutes before the official hour of one o'clock, he heard women's voices and laughter in the drawing-room, and as he stood in the hall, fingering the thin little parcel of six programmes which he had brought with him, the laughter overcame the voices, and then expended itself in shrieks of quite uncontrolled mirth.
The drawing-room door was half open. He stepped quietly to it. The weather, after being thunderous, had cleared, and the part of the drawing-room near the open window was shot with rays of sunshine. Janet Orgreave, all dressed in white, lay back in an easy chair. She was laughing and wiping the tears from her eyes. At the piano sat very upright a seemingly rather pert young woman, not laughing but smiling, with arch, sparkling eyes fixed on the other. This was Daisy Marion, a cousin of Mrs. Tom Orgreave, and the next to the last unmarried daughter of a large family up at Hillport. Standing by the piano was a young, timid girl of about sixteen, whom Edwin, who had not seen her before, guessed to be Janet's niece, Elaine, eldest daughter of Janet's elder sister in London. Elaine's approaching visit had been announced. These other two, like Janet, were in white. Lastly, there was Hilda, in grey, with a black hat, laughing like a child. They are all children, he thought, as, unnoticed, he watched them in their bright, fragile frocks and hats, and in their excessive gaiety, and in the strange abandon of their gestures. They are a foreign race encamped among us men. Fancy women of nearly forty giggling with these girls as Janet and Hilda are giggling. He felt much pleasure in the sight. It could not have happened in poor old Maggie's reign. It was delicious. It was one of the rewards of existence, for the grace of these creatures was surpassing. But at the same time it was hysterical and infantile. He thought, I've been taking women too seriously. And his heart lightened somewhat. Elaine saw him first. A flush flowed from her cheeks to her neck. Her body stiffened. She became intensely self-conscious. She could not speak, but she leaned forward and gazed with a passion of apprehension at Janet, as if murmuring, Look, the enemy, take care. The imploring silent movement was delightful in its gawky ingenuousness. Do tell us some more, Daisy, Hilda implored weakly. There is no more, said Daisy, and then started, Oh, Mr. Clayhanger, how long have you been there? He entered the room, yielding himself proud, masculine, acutely aware of his sudden effect on these girls. For even Hilda was naught but a girl at the moment, and Janet was really a girl, though the presence of that shy niece just awaking to her own body and to the world made Janet seem old in spite of her slimness and of that smoothness of skin that was due to a tranquil, kind temperament. The shy niece was enchantingly constrained upon being introduced to Edwin, whom she was enjoined to call uncle. Only yesterday she must have been a child, her marvellously clear complexion could not have been imitated by any aunt or elder sister. "'And now perhaps you'll tell me what it's all about,' said Edwin. Hilda replied, "'Janet's called about tennis. It seems they're sick of the new Hillport club. I knew they would be. And so next year Janet's having a private club on her lawn.' "'Bad as it is,' said Janet, "'where the entire conversation won't be remarks by girls about other girls' frocks and remarks by men about the rotten inferiority of other men.' This is all very sound, said Edwin, rather struck by Hilda's epigrammatic quality. But what I ask is, what were you laughing at? Oh, nothing, said Daisy Marion. Very well, then, said Edwin, going to the door and shutting it. Nobody leaves this room till I know. Now, niece Elaine? Elaine went crimson and squirmed on her only recently hidden legs, but she did not speak. Tell him, Daisy, said Janet. Daisy sat still straighter. It was only about Alec Batchgrew, Mr. Clayhanger. I suppose you know him. 
Alec was the youngest scion of the great and detested plutocratic family of Batchgrew, enormously important in his nineteen years. "'Yes, I know him,' said Edwin. "'I saw him on his new grey horse this morning.' "'His horse?' Janet corrected. They all began to laugh again, loudly. "'He's taken a terrible fancy to Maud, my kiddie sister,' said Daisy. "'She's sixteen. Yesterday afternoon at the tennis club he said to Maud, "'Look here!' I shall ride through the town tomorrow morning on my horse while you're all marketing. I shan't take any notice of any of the other girls, but if you bow to me, I'll take my hat off to you. She imitated the Batchgrew intonation. That's a good tale, said Edwin calmly. What a cuckoo! He ought to be put in a museum. Daisy, made rather nervous by the success of her tale, bent over the piano and skimmed pianissimo and rapidly through the clighty waltz. Elaine moved her shoulders to the rhythm. Janet said they must go. Here, hold on a bit, said Edwin, through the light film of music, and undoing the little parcel, he handed one specimen of the programme to Hilda, and another to Janet, simultaneously. Oh, so my ideas are listened to sometimes, murmured Hilda, who was, however, pleased. A malicious and unjust remark, he thought, but the next instant Hilda said in a quite friendly, natural tone, Janet's going to bring Elaine, and she says Tom says she is to tell you that he's coming whether he's wanted or not. Daisy won't come. Why? asked Edwin, but quite perfunctorily. He knew that Marians were not interested in interesting music, and his design had been to limit the audience to enthusiasts. Church, answered Daisy succinctly. Come after church. She shook her head. And how's the practising? Edwin inquired from Janet. Pretty fair, said she, but not so good as this programme. What swells we are, my word. Hilda's idea, said Edwin generously. Your mother coming? Oh, yes, I think so. As the visitors were leaving, Hilda stopped Janet. Don't you think it'll be better if we have the piano put over there and all the chairs together round here, Janet? It might be, said Janet uncertainly. Hilda turned sharply to Edwin. There, what did I tell you? Well, he protested good-humouredly, what on earth do you expect her to say when you ask her like that? Anyhow, I may announce definitely that I am not going to have the piano moved. We'll try things as they are for a start, and then see. Why, if you put all the chairs together over there, the place will look like a blooming boarding-house. The comparison was a failure intact, which he at once recognised but could not retrieve. Hilda faintly reddened and the memory of her struggles as manageress of a boarding-house was harshly revived in her. "'Some day I shall try the piano over there,' she said, low. And Edwin concurred amiably. "'All right, some day we'll try it together, just to see what it is like.' The girls, the younger ones still giggling, slipped elegantly out of the house, one after another. Dinner passed without incident. End of Book One, Chapter Nine Part 1